Welcome to the 13th episode of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. In this one, me, Alan Walker, and my co-hosts, Toby Coulshaw and Nick Brooks, spoke to Andrew Godomsky of Aspen Analytics. Amongst other things, we talked about the SEC human capital reporting, what this means for businesses and talent intelligence teams. We also digged into the perspective Andrew has on TI and what the future holds for it, discussed some of the work he's been involved in, and he told us why and how HR have evolved their understanding of data over the last 16 years. Alison couldn't join us as she was off sunning herself on holiday, the lucky so-and-so. Anyway, that's it. This is an absolute humdinger of an episode, so have fun. Before we get on with the main event, I just wanted to remind you that this podcast is proudly sponsored by our friends at Stratagens. And here's a very well-spoken chat to tell you a little bit more about them. Stratagens gives HR leaders the data they need to transform businesses with the speed and ease required in today's world. If you're ready to make decisions that aren't lengthy, costly, one-dimensional, or based on gut feeling, visit stratagens.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-I-G-E-N-S.com to register for a Wednesday demo drop-in and find out more. Hello, I'm Alan Walker, and welcome to episode 13 of the Talent Intelligence Collective podcast. Yay! I'm joined by my co-host Nick Brooks of Microsoft and Toby Coulshaw of Amazon. Say hello, guys. Hello, hello. hello. Uh, the awesome Alison Etheridge, try saying that after a couple of gins, isn't with us today as she's gallivanting around enjoying a much-deserved holiday uh, and hopefully having a couple of gins. So Alison will be back for the next episode, we, we hope. And, of course, this show wouldn't be anything without our guests and this time, we certainly have a cracking guest with us. It's Andrew Godomsky of Aspen Analytics. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Why don't you introduce yourself quickly? Hello, hello. Uh, my name is Andrew Godomsky. And uh, as Alan said, I'm uh, the managing director of Aspen Analytics. I am broadcasting from southern New Jersey. It's about, about an hour and 20 minutes away from Manhattan in the States and uh, or New York. Uh, and I run a analytics business. We work with large-scale organizations to help them understand the recruiting and retention activities that they execute globally, uh, and, and help them understand how to make a better workforce. Uh, you know, I, I wish I could. I wish it was the exact same formula for every organization, but it's not. And they have lots of data to look at, and so we help them do that. And I've been doing that for about 15 years with a small team. Uh, uh, that we have here in the States. And uh, it's been fun to date. And talent intelligence is something that we've gotten into quite a bit over the past couple of years. So I'm excited to be on the show. So thank you for having me. That's great. Thank you. And um, it's brilliant to have you on the show. Um, me and my co-hosts, and, and of course, our listeners are looking forward to hearing more about you and your work at Aspen later on in the show. Um, I think most of us are fairly familiar with the format, but for those newbies, um, in just a minute, Toby's going to lead us through the news section, highlighting the compelling and interesting topics that are happening in the world of TI at the moment. And we'll all get involved in a discussion around those. And then Nick, possibly supported by me and Toby, if we can think of anything interesting to ask, will fire questions at Andrew about his career and views on all things talent intelligence. So let's do this thing. Toby, you're up first. What's happening in the world of TI? Yes. Well, first off, can I say, Andrew, that was the best intro I think we've had so far on any of these sessions. So, Alan, you're losing your job. We're just going to get Andrew do all intros for all guests from now on. <laughs> uh, so what's been going on in the world of TI? The biggest hot topic this week, month, um, and, and it's been beyond the world of just TI, but broader industry, is uh, Google made an announcement that it's going to cut pay of staff who work from home. And this is specifically to Google in the, the US, um, and they're saying if, essentially if people want to work from home remotely, uh, permanently, they've developed a pay calculator that lets employees see the effect of this and how it's going to affect on their, their salary, etc. Particularly aimed at those that were kind of looking at long commutes with their, their new location. Um, it's caught a lot of a lot of noise, and there was a lot of people talking about it. Uh, I think it, for me, it's a, quite an interesting one because. I don't see it as huge news in the sense of most big companies have had some kind of calculation, whether you're working uh, in, in different cities, different regions, different locations. There's always, gonna, there's always been a pay flex 
um, across different areas. We've seen some kind of hot news in the last few months and, and since COVID around certain organizations saying we're going to pay picking a random city, San Francisco salaries, no matter where you live in the US. Um, I've never thought that was going to be a realistic thing and a sustainable thing for, for all companies. And that, that was never going to really work in my mind. I think you will see maybe a, 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 a situation where you end up with kind of a baseline that shifts and maybe shifts up in the, the more rural locations and shifts down in uh, some of the cities. But um, yeah, for me, it was a, a really big news topic. But personally, I didn't see a huge amount of news within it. It was it was there. Everyone's been talking about it. But yeah, for, for me, it was just a case of, you know what? It's a rebalancing calculator. It's always been the norm. It's just now it's become more of a hot topic because it's people that are deciding to move and work remotely versus starting off that way. I guess people are thinking or were thinking they'd have the best of both worlds, wouldn't they? So I'll move out of the big city. I'll keep my big city salary, but I'll live somewhere where the the costs are far lower and expect still to be earning that money. And I don't think that's necessarily realistic um, to to think that. And um, and it would be economically unviable for organisations to pay exactly the same salaries to everybody all over the world, um, regardless of where they are, I think. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. You're, you're that side of the pond, obviously, Andrew. What are you hearing about this? Oh, this is, this is the topic. Um so there are different folks who have different points of view on this. I think uh, me being an East coast uh, metropolitan, you know, we have a higher cost of living. And uh, so we're kind of used to this concept that we will, we pay more for where we live. Um, more, more and more companies are coming at us and saying, what should we do? And I haven't necessarily indicated to them that they should have a, location-based model or not, but they do need to be very public and very open with what their models will be and what they're going to execute. And I think what we're starting to see with some of this is that we've black boxed and hidden how people get paid regionally within a country and globally. And now that's becoming kind of out there. I mean, I, I kind of laugh about this concept regionally here in the States. People are like, well, we should pay whatever we pay in San Francisco. I'm like, great. So are you going to start playing, paying people in India eight times what we're paying them? <laughs> All of a sudden? I'm like, why? Because someone wants to move from Manhattan out to, you know, central New Jersey. And, you know, and it's a third of, you know, it's it's 15% less or they want to move to Omaha. I, I think that it's not going to go away. People are confused. Uh, but I, I've just been telling employers, make this part of your employment brand. Make this a, 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 a flag in the sand on this is how we reward. This is our philosophy. And we're going to own it and make it part of our structure. And no, full transparency. So that's what I hope that to see a lot more of. Do, do you think it will come into uh, – I've seen quite a few conversations this week around the sense of people taking the position that you're paying me for an outcome. You're paying me for a deliverable of work. How and where I get that done is irrelevant. And I quite like that concept, but I think the knock-on effect, as you say, uh, said earlier, is – Okay, well, if, I, if I'm paying you for an outcome and I'm paying somebody in India for an outcome or from Philippines or for you know, South Africa, wherever, do we pay you all for the same outcome? So does it even out as, well, actually, your salary is going to come down a huge amount because if you're getting paid eight to ten times more than somebody in India, it, it may end up we're halving your salary because we're paying you for an outcome, not for the, the work uh, location that you're in. Um, yeah. By the way, I, ha I haven't heard a good retort when I've kind of thrown that model back out at people. No. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> yeah, Andrew, you, you raise a good point, though. The, the consistent messaging around what you're going to do and holding the organizational accountable to it is, is so important, right? And I think with Google, we've seen a bit of back and forth with even just the hybrid distribution of employees. And it was kind of initially no, and then it was kind of yes. And now it's okay. 
We're giving you this transparent tool to figure out what works for you and, and you're going to be compensated in accordance with your choices. And <clears throat> I think it's just employees, they, they want to know what is the, the firm strategy? How do we go forward? And, and yeah, to Toby's point, geographic pay leveling has been in existence for all of time and the cost of doing business region to region is very, very different. And a lot of employers make their workforce plans and strategies heavily weighted around cost, right? And and this really, this remote and distributed model throws a lot of that into contention. So there's a lot of factors. It's not a clean cut, simple argument, is it, Andrew? It's, uh, I think organizations have to just decide upon what is going to be uh, most efficient for the way that they do business and really stick to that and make it obviously part of the brand and part of the proposition to work for that company. So uh, I think we're still in the experiment, aren't we? So we may see employees voting with their feet at Google. They may see some pain and some attrition as a result. They may revert. We we shall see. I think very much a developing situation across the board. No, no question. And, um, you know, and a blog post is not, you know, no, does not a reference make, right? Just because people are talking about it. The a, a company that is operating with 100,000 employees in 60 countries across maybe five continents operating in 18 time zones is not the same as a startup in San Francisco or right. London. So, you know, I think we tend to, I think we tend to aggregate a lot of these ideas very quickly in the media and it's like, no, let's look at the data and how you're going to build your workforce. And then you're going to really make some concessions and considerations and some thought about what do you do globally, locally, regionally? We'll see. I think, I think it's, it's definitely a, a 2022 um, talking point. That's for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Excellent. What else is happening, Toby? So one of the bits that I, I like this week was there's been a paper written, um, not from the world of TI, but the world of CI, so competitive intelligence. And uh, Louis Madeira has written um, a hugely in-depth study uh, titled Competitive Intelligence, a Unified View and Modular Definition. It's a huge paper. Um, I definitely recommend people dig into it because I think there's a huge number of parallels between what they're saying in competitive intelligence and what we're seeing in talent intelligence, specifically around the fact that the definitions used vary so dramatically. And um, I think we saw that on the uh, benchmarking study from the Talent Intel Collective. The vast majority of practitioners, so people doing TI, uh, are somewhat stable on what their definition is. Uh, you're seeing it change dramatically when it goes to the vendor, and the vendors are seeing a, a different definition. And then we're also seeing it from a, a product perspective, and the tech products are having a very different uh, definition themselves. So I think we're—it's—it's it's really interesting paper to see that, those parallels. And I think uh, CI generally, as an industry, is one that we can—we're uh, probably following the maturity curve quite closely. So it'll be, it's quite an interesting one to dig into and uh, see how that sits compared to what we're seeing in our world. I'd love to hear your view, and Andrew, on how you define TI. No, actually, I was asked to, to define it for today. And so, you know, Toby, I actually like what, what you've been coming up with here on the podcast and then in the, in the Facebook group around around the idea that you have, you've got a function whose job is to inform HR on the workforces, the competitiveness, the salaries, the diversity, the data attributes of other workforces so you can make decisions about what you're going to do differently. I, I find that when you think about talent intelligence that way and you make it where you're going to aggregate these data, you're going to aggregate this information and then make different or inform against the decisions that are around the workforce. All of a sudden, you know, you're not talking about personally identifiable information. And you're 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 aggregating all this work, and 
I'm just not a fan of of this linkage that that some people are making between talent, intelligence, and sourcing. Mm. I, I am not a fan. I'm not an advocate. And you know, if, as we deliver products, I'm telling our clients, you will not see personally identifiable information inside talent intelligence ever. You don't need the phone numbers. You don't need the emails. You don't even need the names of the people. Because no one name is going to change what we're going to do in terms of how are you going to pay your people? How are you going to reward your people? Where are we going to place this workforce? Are we, are we being competitive in terms of our diversity? What schools should we go to? What skills should we acquire? Those are that that's talent intelligence. Answering those questions, answering who is the CFO of or what is the hierarchy or what, you know, how many people work as product managers and what are their phone numbers? Those are sourcing questions. And by the way, they only matter when you have vacancy. So. One of the big differences between talent intelligence and sourcing is that talent intelligence has got sustainable data insights, while sourcing only has relevance, one, if there's a vacancy, and then it's very time-bound. I mean... I completely agree. I think the, the, the way it gets murky... Um, and I, I know Nick and I have had many a conversation about whether things are sourcing intelligence or talent intelligence or, or crossover. Uh, I think where it gets murky is talent intelligence is a function versus talent intelligence as an, an activity. And, and I think sourcing intelligence, I, I, my, my thought thinking is changing on this over time, but I think for, for the activity I mentioned around sourcing, I think that's, for me, that's sourcing intelligence. I, I think it, it could be a subset of the overall talent intelligence. And I'm wondering whether, and we discussed this in the past, whether, whether talent intelligence is actually the wrong title for us and it's actually labor market intelligence is what we're doing. Um, because so often talent is tied to um, specifically the, the talent and the individual uh, that you're looking for and the individuals you're looking to recruit against or talent management, the individuals within the organization. So I, I'm, I'm challenging myself frequently around whether in actual fact, what I think of as talent intelligence is actually labor market intelligence or competitive intelligence, et cetera. Um, but I, I agree, personally, I agree with your definition in terms of the activity and the work. I, I think it's all of that value add piece, but I think it does get murky and gray, particularly when you start getting into kind of the human side of things and interviewing individuals to try and get competitive intel and talent intel out of that. Often a huge way of, that, of doing that is through recruitment processes. So I think it can get very, very gray very quickly. Well, and, you know, it does get, doesn't it get so odd when you have tools that are taking personally identifiable information, right? And what they're doing is they're aggregating that. And then they're saying, well, this is talent intelligence. And I'm not discarding that. I'm not saying that's not talent intelligence when you say, this is how many people exist in this country with this skill set. And here's that trend over time. That's true. That's absolute talent intelligence. I want to know how many people have been certified in this region over time. And is that changing the skill set for cybersecurity? Is that changing the skill set for supply chain? I want to know those things. But I don't need their names and phone numbers. I might yeah. need... Right. I don't. I mean, now, do I need to know that regionally? Sure. Do I need to know it by state? Probably. Do I need to know it by metropolitan statistical area? Hopefully. Now I can start making plans and I can say, huh, maybe we should think differently about our workforce. And it looks like more people with these skill sets are being educated in these areas. We've got more customers in these areas, maybe we should start thinking differently about where we source our teams from or where we move our teams to or how we build facilities. Okay, that's all talent intelligence. Those dialogues. And if you're not having those dialogues, you're probably having sourcing dialogues or recruiting dialogues. Yeah. 
I'd agree. I, the, the rule of thumb I've always used with my teams is if it's personally identifiable, GDPR relevant, it's probably not the work my team does. It doesn't mean it's not very valuable work, and it doesn't mean it's not really important work. It's probably just not what we geared towards. Um, and I think you do have certain crossover teams that, 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 that cover both, and you certainly have with an exact search. I think it gets, once again, those gray areas. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think the GDPR and personal, personal identifiable information is a great rule of thumb as to what you're presenting and how you're using data. Yeah. Nick, well, what's your take? Yeah, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew, go ahead. No, no, I was saying, Nick, I want to hear what you think. Yeah, um, I think, Toby, you were alluding to this earlier. It's um, it's not necessarily the function of, it's the output, right? Because the common denominator here is working off the same data set, whether you're defining your work as sourcing intelligence or talent intelligence. It's it's the authority and the understanding of the external landscape. But I think, Andrew, your points really resonated with me about PIR and GDPR-related information, because when you're getting down to that granular level of an individual, you're identifying someone for a very tactical purpose very often. Um, whereas what we do in the field of TI is really about aggregating that information to drive business decisions forward. And that's broader than recruiting and sourcing. It's workforce strategy, it's employer strategy, it's even business strategy to an extent. So I think that's one clearer way to draw a line in the sand is is the the PII piece, most definitely. But I think um, there are some gray areas of crossover to Toby's point as well, like executive search research, where it can be how do you think about um, designing for roles which may not exist today? And the ways you may do that is adopting more of a sourcing mindset to understand skills and composition of backgrounds and pathways to help business leaders think through. And, and it's not just a case of we need to find someone to fill a role. It could be a leader to own and run and manage a new functional service, right? So it becomes almost more of a business problem that you're looking to think about how and who do we bring into that role aligned to what the market is saying and what the opportunity is. So. Um, I'm I'm with you guys. I'm very bullish on the definition not being a direct kind of sourcing recruiting activity. And it's about the information and aggregate and the themes. But um, I do understand there are some areas where it gets pretty close at times. And, and maybe maybe talent intelligence does become a broader umbrella for a subset of different outputs and actions over time. Um, but that that's my kind of perspective at the moment anyway. Well, Nick, you know, you bring up executive, and that's and that's actually a really good example of when you can when you'll be positioning sourcing insight uh, alongside talent intelligence. Mm-hmm. So the, the question may be: We're going to hire. Um, we need to hire a, a new executive to run uh, all of product development, and so people may ask the questions: Who are in the roles? How much do they make? Um, what are their um, what are their skills? Um, what what are our competitors doing, and who are our and who are those people that are inside our competitors? Mm-hmm. You could probably argue that a lot of those answers that you would come up with are going to be sourcing insights, and they're going to say, "Here are the people. Here's what they do. Here are their resumes. Here's how much they make." Okay, that's that's sourcing insight or sourcing intelligence. While talent intelligence is going to be more of a, why are we going to design this job this way? And you say, well, of all of our competitors within, you know, and then at the same time within our index on the stock market, how we're measured by the analysts, here's our 30 or 40, here are 30 or 40 companies and how they do product development. And here's the workforce that's within it. This is how big it is. Here's how that's changed over time. The leadership frameworks look like this. The skill sets that are on the rise are these. And we're recommending that you design this job. You design this job to lead this function this way. That's all, that is all talent intelligence. Because now what you're not talking about is the position. You're talking about the function of product development. Yeah. And the business need. Yeah. And the business need. Exactly yep. right. And it's a very different – the data might be similar, but the aggregation and the segmentation and then the, and then the insight that you're pulling out of it is very different because the questions you ask the data are different. Yeah, that's right. 
Excellent. So, Toby, have we got time for one more bit of news before we crack on with questions? For Andrew? I was going to say, I hope we got time for one quick one because um, it was a topic that's come up in the last couple of days that I know Andrew and I have discussed in the past and as Nick and I have as well. Um, and it's around the SEC filings. And um, this is literally hot off the press. Uh, and essentially, the SEC uh, is looking to take on corporate America, as it, as it put it. So the SEC being the Securities Exchange Commission, they, they were quite clear uh, for about the last 18 months, 24 months off the top of my head, saying they wanted much more granular data on the workforce of uh, the corporates listed on them. Um, they wanted to understand much more around how we would be, we, the makeup of those organizations, how they were doing from a demography perspective, how diversity overall was working, how compensation was going, employee turnover, attrition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we've seen the first round of listings and people, organizations starting to publish their data. We highlighted in a, a, a podcast a, a few months back that the data that was coming through was very irregular. Um, it, it wasn't consistent. And we, we said, you know, it would be great if the SEC actually started tightening up on this and, and, and having a much more pre prescriptive um, uh, process around this so that we get a much more clarity on, on what that data is, what it means, what it doesn't mean. Uh, and obviously from a TI perspective, then we can start aggregating that stuff and comparing and contrasting and cutting things in different ways. It looks like uh, the SEC are listening for the podcast because uh, they're listening to us and it looks like they're trying to change things. <laughs> um, you know, in the article, it says it's being urged by progressive Democrats and unions and investors, but I like to think it's the, the podcast that did it. Um, but yeah, it looks like they're, they're trying to take corporates to task and they're going to try and look at becoming much more prescriptive, having a, a much tighter definition of what this, this all means. And how challenging is it for organisations to produce the data that they're being asked to produce, guys? Is this <laughs> is it that they don't want to share it, but it's pretty easy to pull together, or is it actually a challenge to even put their hands on that kind of information? Oh, oh how long is this podcast? Um, <laughs> We've got at least another thirty minutes if we need, Andrew. <laughs> so, so this this is this is this is square in the meat of a lot of the work that we've been doing over the past twelve months. And so when, when this got, so I, I got wind of what the SEC was doing over a year ago. And, um, and then when this got uh, registered in November, we started getting put to task from, from some of our Fortune 100, Fortune 500 organizations that are SEC regulated, right? And there's a number of global organizations that have huge pockets of personnel outside of the United States that are regulated by the SEC, so this is not an American, this is not a United States thing, right? This is, if you are a big global employer and you happen to be trading on the NASDAQ or you trade on the New York Stock Exchange or you're over the counter, but you're regulated by, you are public and you are trading in the United States, you have to send in this data to the SEC when you do your annual filing. So that's a lot of companies, thousands mm. of companies. So, so here's the, the skeptic in me. When you think about financial reporting, there are somewhat stringent guidelines as to what's expected, but there's also a lot of room for interpretation among those companies. Um, mm -hmm. This kind of information can expose a lot of competitive weakness or strength. If they don't have strict enough guidelines on exactly what and how it needs to be produced, could it be produced in such an aggregate manner that it almost becomes completely useless, right? And I, I think we see that with a lot of workforce data that gets published anyway through a lot of SEC filings, especially when we think about talent, very heavily aggregated functions with very generalized kind of titles and taxonomies that doesn't really get you to the crux of how organizations are segmented. So I think there's, it will be interesting to see how strict and how much rigor they put around around what is exactly expected because organizations will find ways around it i'm sure oh and, and they haven't you know so let's talk about what this wasn't and there's you know actually i think uh i did a podcast on this a while ago and we talked about it for an hour so i won't do that but they didn't come up with a list of here are the 12 things that you need to talk about right so there isn't like some magic list somewhere that has all of the data and here's the definition of the metric or the KPI. 
So, so the SEC stopped short of that. Mm-hmm. What What's interesting, though, is at least from what we're doing is, you know, there's an ISO standard around human capital analytics. And, and the position right now is that the, the, the investment community is starting to understand that there are standards. So we go ahead and, I mean, if you look up, I, I know it off the top of my head because I'm a geek and that's what we do, but ISO standard 30414 lists over 50 different human capital metrics that are standardized. And for our companies who are SEC regulated and they say, we're not quite sure what to do, I say the exact same thing. We're going to do all of those right now. Because you didn't come up with them. Someone else did. They're an ISO standard. And so when you talk to the street, when you go ahead and create your story that you're going to put in your annual report and talk about diversity, talk about performance, talk about safety, talk about the workforce, you're going to use the language that's an ISO standard. Now, you don't have to include all 50 things. You can just talk about four of them and say, we're really good at these things. And that's part of our strategy. But when you sit with your analysts and you're doing your calls, you still need to use this language. And that's what they're starting to do. They're starting to use a standard set of language. So, Because the analysts are saying, well, tell me about your people. But they're not, you know, Morgan Stanley is listening to that story across a sector from 30 other companies. So they're going to they're going to make their evaluation on your stock price based on the language you use and the language that the other 29 other companies use. So you say you're great at diversity. Well, show them the data, show them what it is, use certain language, and then they can say, God, those guys have really got it. That team has really got it together. And they're really doing great things in diversity. And then guess what? That's what hits the street. It's it's a very weird game right now. I, I I'm I'm really excited about it. But um, do you think on the back of that you'll see on earnings calls and quarterly updates, annual reports, etc., you'll see much more presence of potentially the CHROs, but also potentially say the chief people analytics officer or heads of heads of TI. I don't know. Uh, do you think do you think you'll you'll start seeing their presence because that language choice around how they're reporting back on um, the, the ISO is going to be so critical that they want the head of people analytics, head of, head of human resources on that call to, to talk about it. It's, it's kind of an interesting partnership. It, so realize that what we're talking about is what you put in your annual report, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then that downstream can have impact to what you tell your, the analysts who listen to you on your calls. But it's a, it's a partnership between your CHRO, your CFO, your investor relations team, and then whoever does analytics. So because, because the, the, the reporting in the annuals are so, you know, so from the, from the chief financial officer's office, you know, there, there's got to be this partnership, but usually – what, what, what organizations are struggling with is HR has almost never had a relationship with investor relations inside a, a public company. They just don't have one. They don't know who they are. They don't talk to them regularly. Well, now you have to. And you've got to figure out what's the language we use to talk to the street about human capital and our people. So that's really where the partnership is. And so it's this weird partnership with it. So the CHRO is involved. People analytics are involved. Talent intelligence is involved a lot. Because why are you doing what you're doing? Well, we're investing in we're investing in these skill sets in these places because we've got strong talent intelligence that cybersecurity skills or the development skills or product development skills are growing in these areas and that's how we're leveraging it. And we are paying above market and we are being aggressive with trying to uh, hire more women and individuals 
who disclosed dis- uh, disability, and this is how we're doing it. Yeah. And if, if what I'm hearing is correct, Andrew, the companies that get ahead of this and use it as a positive positioning exercise could have a, con- a distinct competitive advantage, right? So being able to take those strengths and articulate them in a way that hasn't been articulated before, because the analysts are going to be asking more pointed questions, right? Now they're going to be kind of pushing towards talk to us about organizational health, what it means, what are the risks. Um, so it's it's kind of in some ways, an opportunity to drive some new, stronger values around the human capital across organizations. And that's that's fascinating. And it, it could have pretty distinct downstream accountability on HR and TI and PA organizations as well to monitor the health and think about um, organizational positioning in, in, in different ways. So are you hearing that from clients, Andrew? Do you think that they're seeing it in an optimistic way more so than kind of a challenge going forward? Or is it just a, it's too early to say? It, it's, I'll say that the maturity differs from one company to another. Mm-hmm. Um, some companies, this is a very new conversation. They haven't had these kinds of dialogues around human capital analytics really yet. You know, outside of maybe like, what's our headcount? What's our diversity you know, the, you know, how are we doing on time to fill? There are organizations that are at their infancy or early stage, right? And so what I am finding is that when you talk to them about, there are seven or eight major storylines that we should consider talking to the street about. Yeah. One might be how you invest in your personnel and their learning and development. And how that increases your mobility, how that increases retention. Do you have that storyline? Well, these are these are the data points that we would need to find to, to prove that, right? You're either doing it or you're not. Then there's a storyline around we execute diversity. This is what it does for our bottom line. This is what it does for retention. This is what it does for position tenure and other things. And there are, you know, this is how we invest in safety protocols. This is how, you know, believe it or not, I keep on talking about cybersecurity, but, you know, a company that can talk about, this is how we protect our personnel and our assets, and here's how they're trained, and here's how we retain them. And that ensures that our customers and their data and their work is protected. Yeah, that drives stock price. Yeah, but it starts from a place of people and learning and organizational right. strategy towards learning. Yeah, really good example. Uh, listen, guys, normally about 15 minutes ago in the podcast, I've interrupted to say it's time to kind of go into the Q&A piece, but that stuff we were just chatting about was, was fascinating and I, and I wanted to let it run. But we've, I think we've heard enough about Andrew's views on the wider happenings across the world. I think we need to know a little bit more about his immediate world so I think, Nick, it's uh, time for you to step up to the plate and get into the, the Q&A bit. So I'm going to hand over to you now, sir. We can hear more about Andrew and, and Aspen. Good stuff. Yeah, and of course, um, feel free to jump in, Alan, Toby, if you've got any other questions as well. Don't be shy. Um, I think, Andrew, this first question might take up the entire time. So here goes. Um, so one of the industry, and I'm talking about human capital analytics broadly, uh, the biggest challenges we see today is the disparate nature of internal and external data sources. So when we've got large disconnected data sets that often speak in different languages and taxonomies, um, how do you as an organization partnering with, with customers, where do you start and what kind of advice would you have for thinking through the process of bringing those sources together and making meaningful signals and, and insights? That's a good place to start. Um, I think that uh, you're, you're spot on around how there isn't um, shared taxonomies between these data sources. So one of the things that we tend to think about when it comes to talent intelligence and human capital analytics is if we're going to start asking ourselves questions about skills and competencies, and that's going to be part of the questioning within the data set. Um, and we want to answer those questions. 
we need to develop a competency uh, or some sort of a, a job framework that we can use that the company can own that says, these are the jobs that we have. They could be in job families, by the way. But here are the knowledge, skills, abilities, um, certifications, specialized skills, experiences that make up these jobs. Now, not every company has that. Now, some companies have it for like executive jobs and some companies have it for their most popular jobs. And But what, what I would say is you've got to have at least a framework that you can lean on that's your own taxonomy for knowledge, skills, and abilities for probably your highest volume positions and then your most critical positions. So you need to do the analysis on both. And then what you have is now I have this internal language and say, let's say I know that, um, oh, let's pick something like project management. Let's say that project management is a key function within your organization because you're service oriented, et cetera. So you say, what are the knowledge, skills, and abilities? What are the types of roles that we have? We've, we've knocked that down. And now I'm going to go ahead and use key terms, key phrases, and so on. That's my language. When I go out to LinkedIn, well, well when, I, when I go into Workday, when I go into Workday, I have a cipher back to that language. When I go into ISIMS, I have, a, I have something going back to that language, right? And then in, in, with the systems that I own, I can create that cipher once, and now I have, have it pretty much forever. And then I update it every quarter, or I update it every half year, and I do that for each of the job families. When I'm looking at disparate data that is across the external market, and I look at something like LinkedIn, I'll take that same framework and I'll say, what are the key words that LinkedIn and the tags that LinkedIn has already made that are now eligible back to my taxonomy? You, you go ahead and you capture those. If you have that for another tool, if you, you, know, I'm, you, know, you know, pick your tool. They have tags, they have keywords. Do the mapping back to your taxonomy. And now what you're doing is you're gonna grab this data from wherever the tables are, and there's always a cipher back to your framework to what's important and critical and of volume for your workforce. Now that sounds like a lot. It is, but the justification for doing the work is, well, we've got X thousands of people who do this work in our organization. It is worth our time, money, and effort to make up the framework and know what are the jobs, what are the skills. Oh, by the way, the you know, after you're done with this framework and making it, you can use those knowledge, skills, and abilities to measure performance, do reviews, do phone screens, do interviews, and rate performance. Because you've done the work. But you have to have these frameworks. If you don't have a framework, I mean, you can do talent intelligence all day long, but you have no way of aggregating the data cleanly. You can guess. But that's where you start. And, that, and, and that's a lot of the work. Everything else is just feeding the data to ask the question on how do I tell me more about pro product management or program management? Well, what does that mean for my business? Well, now I know. So I can ask this external data the same questions I can ask my internal data. Make sense? Absolutely. Starting from a place of a common language, that's that's exactly it. And then how how do you connect? And, and there are inferences to be made, right? Because the languages may be different, internal to external. Um, but that's where you can start to tie it all back together. So um, that was a great and very comprehensive response, Andrew. So I'm um, curious to know, are there any types of clients that have stood up to you that have greater standards of data hygiene than others? And are there particular organizational or behavioral characteristics 
that may have contributed to that? I think that the companies that are probably third-party regulated, their data hygiene in general can be better than those that are not. Mm-hmm. So if, if GDPR, OFCCP here in the States, um, any number of others globally, if, if you're being regulated because of your size and your shape and how you trade, um, you will see better data hygiene in those organizations than you would say in a private organization that's not in a regulated industry. Right. So I would say the public companies uh, or the regulated companies that are of size who are also in a regulated industry. So they're in healthcare, financial markets, pharmaceuticals, um, maybe even industrial manufacturing conglomerates when they're regulated by things like OSHA. Their data hygiene tends to be better. Mm-hmm. And I think that they tend to have some of those better behaviors and processes because they also have some operating models that might be working in their manufacturing or in their um, operational, the general operational uh, processes uh, that are at the enterprise level. Like as an example, years ago, Honeywell had what was known as the Honeywell operating system. And it was, this is how we do data here. This is how we do process. And that went through every part of the organization. You had to write what the HOS was. And that captured data better. There were just rules that you had to do. And the reason they did that is because they were regulated by so many places, not just for, you know, but by multiple regulators across aerospace and electronics but then healthcare and so on and so forth, it just made sense to be able to document we have a way of capturing these things. So when you have third-party pressure, I think you tend to be better. Yeah, pressure and accountability, right? Yeah. Yeah, that certainly helps. I, I think the second one I would say is the organizations that actually create data visualizations or dashboards that are specific to data hygiene obviously do much better in general. Yeah. So I'll walk into an organization and I'll say, where's your administrative dashboards or operational dashboards that tell us where the errors are? And, you know, there's crickets and, you know, on the, on the phone or in the zoom or in the room. And I'm like, okay, we need to, we need to know things like, how many, you know, how many of your hires don't have a source indicated? Or we need to know how many of your how many of your hires have a time to fill less than less than four days. Because I know that that's a paper pushing concept. Or how many of our safety incidents have dates that aren't sequential? Right? So there are things like that where you would have a maintenance dashboard or an operational dashboard or insights or analysis, whatever you want to call it, that, oh, wow, we, we have processes that don't work or we, we have manual processes that don't get done. Then what ends up happening is you start identifying where those areas are and you say, well, can we use automation or technology to plug or, or or process automation to one, do the work, but two, get the hygiene of the data to be better. And that's, you know, as soon as you install automation on something that you know is a manual process problem, it's funny how data hygiene increases in that area. Yeah. Consistency. Yeah. Straight, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I know Alison had some great questions as well. Um, Alan, do you want to kick off yeah, with one I'll, or two I'll of those? I suppose on Alison's behalf, no problem. I'm happy to be the the voice of Alison here. 
I won't put a silly voice on though. That would just be ridiculous. And <laughs> um, so your um, your LinkedIn profile, Andrew. And I love this question, by the way. Um, says that most of HR and C suite didn't get your vision. So this is your vision when you launched Aspen. Um, you were talking about data and business analytics in two thousand six, back when guessing, gut feel, and we've always done it that way reigned supreme. Um, how's that changed in the last fifteen years at a senior level? <laughs> well, it's <laughs> it, it's cert- it's certainly, it's certainly, um, the questions have changed um, a bit. So people want to understand more about evidence. And um, I think they, I think they have understood that the data helps them make better strategic decisions. And that, that changes the, the context and the feel of those meetings tremendously. Right. So, you know, if, your your average chief human resources officer is not going to make a lot of decisions right now based on gut feel. Mm. And and so now that it becomes there's a lot more scrutiny of the data and there's a lot more more pointed questions or sharper questions that that come at us but I I think now people get I think they not only get that vision they bought into it a couple of years ago. And that's really kind of changed. And the pandemic, candidly, I mean, the pandemic put such a fine point on the importance of data capture and the importance of data in general, because everybody was everybody went home. And now all of a sudden, where are people working? Are they not working? Are they happy? We don't know. Because I can't I can't check in, you know, in the break room on how somebody feels. And so there was a lot of change, I think, over the last decade, but it really accelerated in the last couple of years. Definitely. The, the need for employee listening systems, and, and they're now the systems that are contributing to the big discussions like hybrid and distributed workforces in a, in a meaningful data-driven way, right? It's happened, to your point, exacerbated it in the past year, um, but it was a necessary journey. Well, and I think what it has also done is because we now have access to people understand that they need to have access to this data so they can make decisions. I think the questioning has changed. So I used to get questions like, so think about benchmarking in in, in regards to say diversity. So it used to be like, well, what's the what's the diversity? of race and national origin around our facilities. Well, now the questions are are more around, well, wait a minute, we we don't hire as many people in our facilities anymore. So, should we do things like should we make this a global job? Should we make this a regional should we make these regional jobs? Should, you know, how are we going to know what's you know they've expanded they've expanded this this concept so much more to understand that it's not just about what's happening in the one facility at this address it's tell me the data about everywhere else and then let's make a decision about whether or not we're going to do something different outside of this facility that widening of the aperture that's probably the biggest conceptual difference from when I started the business is that the lens is so much wider now. And so the questions are wider, which is really cool to see. What's driven that, Andrew? Is it just that data is so much more readily available to people and they're presented to them? And, or has data literacy improved massively so people understand data better? What's, the, what's driving all of this? Well, I think you know part of it is, is also the expenditures that have occurred in the last decade related to human capital management systems and ERP systems. So realize that the executive suite over the last say decade, if there's, you know, you know, there's, there's turnover in that suite, but it's, Mm. it's a slower turnover than it is at the, at the, let's say, let's say management levels, uh, lower management levels. So, the people who are asking me these questions are the people who are part of the decision process to invest $25 million over a so many year period to put Workday in. Yeah. And so now they're asking me questions. Hey, we did that like three years ago. 
tell me what's going on in there. Of course, they don't say it that way, but that's what they're asking. <laughs> yeah, it's right? it's landing the infrastructure, and and you're right. I mean, it's been a it's kind of a zeitgeist moment for HCM in the last decade, right? Just a shift to cloud native platforms and the ingestion of data, and now it's about the maturity and the collection, and we're getting towards the analysis phase. And I think it's a lot of customers are now aware that this information and these questions can be addressed, which they didn't before. They right. were and, very manual. Well, and, and it's been a couple of fiscals, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, think about think about how, uh, so talent acquisitions always is, is one of the places that we do a lot of work in. But from a maturity perspective, the, the idea of an applicant tracking system is not a new idea. I mean, mm-hmm. it might be to some companies, but... I mean, many companies have had applicant tracking systems for over a decade, if not 20 years. So all of a sudden, you know, we, we've kind of gotten to a point where managers and executives ask questions and make decisions based on the fact that they know that that infrastructure exists. Hmm. Well, H, human capital management systems being, being embedded with your enterprise financials and doing that well, and then putting that in the hands of your downstream operators, that's actually a relatively new concept. That's that's a lot, you know, that's maybe a decade old, if not in some companies, only a few years old. And then it took them a couple of years to do it. So now it's been five years ago, we, we, we started the, you know, seven years ago, we started the SAP process. Four years ago, we finished. Well, tell me what how we've been doing over the past couple years, because I know that data is here, and I've got to make. A, I'm on my strategic annual planning, and we're talking about what we're going to be doing for the next five years. You can now start saying, "Well, how did we do the last couple?" You just didn't have the ability during the strategic annual planning periods to ask those questions three years ago because the data wasn't there. Well, the data's there now. And that's what the that's what's really changed, Al, is, Alan, is that, the, is that the availability of this data and its credibility have gone through a few fiscals in a major infrastructure investment that those same executives made years ago. Yeah, and their their ex, their expectations have increased accordingly because yep. nobody wants to pay twenty five million dollars for a virtual filing cabinet, do they? No, they don't. <laughs> Very expensive way to burn through money. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, one other question I or Alice or I as Alison's proxy have got is um, I'm interested to know what you feel is the the future of analytics, Andrew. How things are going to evolve over the next five, ten years. Mm. Well, there's there's certainly um, if you think about how uh, technology gets a uh, gets adopted by um, by humans uh, in general, it has uh, some natural. Um, there are uh, certain adoptions that we've seen. So, I think uh, getting getting questions answered. Um, by machines, by voice, by automation, mm. has has made its way into our consumer lives more. I think the pandemic exacerbated it. By the way, I think it it it, it elevated it. Um, but you know, your average person still isn't doing a lot of dictation. You know, voice to text, and. Yes, we're listening to podcasts and we're doing that, but I don't think we're still quite there on, I mean, as, as much as, you know, my wife and my child ask Siri and Alexa what's going on, they're still not asking Alexa and Siri very complicated questions and neither am I. No. So I think analytics we'll have some machine-driven answering and automation, and that will start to be served up a lot more. We will see more automation within analytics. But I think the human intervention and the human presentation of analytics will probably mature a lot more than it will decay over the next 
five, six, eight years. We will see the rise and the development of more analytical thinking by humans. And we will listen to those messages to make larger decisions, probably less than we would an automated analytical insight. But at that same time, the human analysts are going to be using a lot more automation and microservices to, to, to do their presentations and do their analyses. I mean, the amount of machine learning or the amount of AI or, you know, using multiple models. I mean, we're doing more of that this year than I ever did three years ago. So, so the analysts need to use more automation and the analysts need to use more simulations and more machine learning. But I don't think that that means that you're going to lose the analysts and all of a sudden your average CFO is just going to ask Siri, hey, where should I build my uh, next facility? And then Siri <laughs> says, well, why don't you try here? I, I don't think we're there quite yet. I just think that we're going to see this advancement of of good sharp questions to humans who are going to be looking like iron man they're just really well equipped mm. with great machines and they'll be able to make i mean the demand that we should see is that you know and the difference between a data scientist and an analyst is speed of answer I mean, analysts should be able to quickly make responses and, 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 and adjustments to say, this is what we should do. While a scientist is going to have to study it and, and look at all of the data and all of the different modeling and then say, okay, believe it or not, my initial answer wasn't much different than my secondary answer. While the analyst needs to be able to react. And so that's what we're also going to see. I think that's also part of this maturity is that we will see more departure of analysts versus scientists. Analysts will be very business outcome oriented, while scientists will continue, will, will advance even more into research and simulation. Do you think the role of the analyst will become more of a, more helping the, the end user, the customer, the recipient of the answer to actually ask the right questions in the first place? Yeah. I mean, and by the way, I mean, what a great model we've got. I mean, financial planning and analysis has been doing that with the chief financial officer's office forever. Well, we're used to that. What should I ask? What are the right questions? Mm. Right. And half the time, the questions aren't framed correctly anyway. So these are the questions we should be looking at. Why? And, you know, and, you know, analytics will continue to develop where we ask descriptive questions and then we'll be answering, you know, predictive questions, prescriptive questions. We'll be answering questions around whether or not we should be using um, machine cognition or human cognition to, to do, to do workforce processes. I mean, we will we will continue to advance the questioning in such a way that, you know, an anal a, a, a human capital analyst next year, if you're not starting to think about should we make these 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 operational processes using machines or people, if it's not next year, it's the following year. That's a and like well, how prove it. What what investments are we gonna make in order to do that? I mean, that's really where workforce analytics is going is it's it's going beyond human capital analytics. It's it's the workforce is made up of people, machines, processes, outsourcing, contingent labor. You got to make your question set that broad, not just what are my employees doing? Because employees only make up, you know, I don't know, 40 to 80 percent of the transactional working activity that an organization does. Absolutely. Listen, I think we could do an Andrew episode two at this rate. <laughs> We've already hit the record for 
the longest podcast. So I'm going to have to play the uh, the master of ceremonies role here and call call a stop to these proceedings at some point. And I think that time's going to have to be now, guys. Um, we can't keep talking forever. You know, all good things must eventually come to an end. Uh, Andrew, it's and I mean this from the, the bottom of my heart, it's been great having you on the podcast. How was the experience for you? This has been fantastic. I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to concentrate because uh, there's a landscaper outside, and so hopefully you don't hear that. But it, it's really been um, amazing being on the program, and I'm such a fan of the podcast. And um, I think as far as anything closing, I would say is that the talent intelligence is going to continue to widen. And, um, you know, we, we, you've got to make this a function inside your organization uh, around human capital. And um, so uh, thanks so much to uh, to everybody here who's uh, leading that charge. Oh, that's lovely. And thanks for you coming onto the show and how busy you are. And to our listeners, as always, huge thanks for, you know, listening and supporting us and telling your friends about of all about us and you are of course telling your friends about us right and if you're not please do if you are keep doing so um stay intelligent folks the usual cheesy sign off thanks everyone Thanks for listening. Before you go, I wanted for the last time to remind you about our generous sponsor, Stratagens. Here's that posh chap again, telling you about their fabulous product. Stratagens gives HR leaders the data they need to transform businesses with the speed and ease required in today's world. If you're ready to make decisions that aren't lengthy, costly, one-dimensional, or based on gut feeling, visit stratagens.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-I-G-E-N-S dot com to register for a Wednesday demo drop-in and find out more.